Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 236. We'll continue in the book of First Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 20 through 23 and follow with some thoughts about simping for the status quo. In the last episode, David's armies faced down the Ammonites twice, the first time with mixed results, but the second involved a national mobilization and a decisive victory. Chapter 20 puts the cherry on top of that win, quote, And it happened at the turn of the year, at the time when the kings sally forth, that Joab led the army force and ravaged the land of the Ammonites, and he came and besieged Rabbah. When Rabbah falls, quote, David took the crown of their king from his head and found it weighed a talent of gold, and on it were precious stones, and it was set on David's head, and the booty of the city he brought out in great abundance. The surviving Rabbahites, I guess Rabbahites, Rabbahites are, quote, brought out and set them to work with saw and iron, threshing boards and axes. And thus did David do to all the Ammonite towns. The chapter then moves on to the Philistine front, where we read of accounts of individual combat. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event! Sibchai the Hushatite battles and defeats Sippai the Titan, and Elchanan, son of Yair of Bethlehem, takes on the big man himself, Goliath, and strikes him down. Each man, the chronicler tells us, quote, was a man of huge measure, who had six fingers on each hand and foot, twenty-four in all, and he too sprung from the Titan. And these Titans also loved to trash talk, but it didn't help them much because, quote, Jonathan, son of Shimea, David's kinsman, struck him down. Chapter 21 recounts David's ill-advised decision to conduct a census of the Jewish people. Yoav, his chief of staff, tries to prevent it and asking the king, quote, why should my lord request this? Why should it be cause of guilt in Israel? David, nonetheless, is insistent, and the census is conducted, and predictably, quote, it was evil in the eyes of God on account of this thing, and he struck Israel. David is repentant, but the punishment is forthcoming through the prophet God. Quote, and thus said Adonai, choose for yourself whether three years of famine or three months when you are swept away before your foes and the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or three days during which the sword of Adonai and plague are in the land. And Adonai's messenger destroys throughout the territory of Israel. And now, see what response I should bring back to my sender. Is it behind door number one, or door number two, or door number three? David chooses by not choosing, so God picks door number three, and, quote, Adonai sent a plague against Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent a messenger to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he destroyed, Adonai saw and regretted the evil, and said to the messenger who was sowing destruction, Enough! Now stay your hand. Oof! So the destroyer stays his hand at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, which inspires David. He buys the land with cash and builds an altar there. Why there and why an altar? The answer lies in chapter 22, verse 1. Quote, and David said, This is the house of Adonai, God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. The rest of the chapter will describe all of David's preparations, lining up the Sidonian and Tyrian contractors, the many trips to Home Depot, and then handing over the project 
to his son and heir, Shlomo. He tells his son that he fully intended to build God's house, but God denied him that honor because, quote, blood in abundance you have shed, and you fought great battles. You shall not build a house for my name, for you have shed much blood on the earth before me. But don't worry, because, quote, look, a son is to be born to you. He shall be a man at rest, and I will grant him rest from all his enemies round about. For Solomon shall be his name, and peace and quiet I will bestow upon Israel in his days. He it is who shall build a house for my name, and he shall be a son to me, and I will be a father to him, and I will make the throne of his kingship stand firm over Israel forever. What a deal, right? However, all of this, the success, the prosperity, all of it depends on one thing. Quote, Only may Adonai give you insight and understanding, and may he charge you over Israel to keep the teaching of Adonai your God. Then will you prosper if you keep to do the statutes and the laws with which Adonai charged Moses for Israel. Do you understand? David instructs his officers and courtiers to support his son's effort, which will also require the effort and support of the kingdom's bureaucracy, which chapter 23 begins to identify for us. The list is long. It will continue well into chapter 27. The chronicler begins with the Levites, 38,000 in all, 24,000 of which will work in the sacred compound, 6,000 as overseers and judges, and 4,000 as choristers. The temple project ushers in a new age for the kingdom. Quote, For David had said, Adonai, God of Israel, has granted rest to his people and shall abide in Jerusalem forever. And so the Levites need no longer carry the sanctuary and all its vessels for his service. First, let's go to our new, kind of old, chronicle-specific segment entitled... You can go your own way. Go your own way. The Chronicler has two prominent examples in this episode where he goes his own way, opting to radically revise the source material to suit his obvious monarchist purposes. The first comes from chapter 20, verse 1, quote, And it happened at the turn of the year, at the time when kings sally forth. This initial clause reproduces the initial clause in the story of David and Bathsheba found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Except here in Chronicles, there was no naked bathing Bathsheba, no creepy stalker David, or his subsequent adultery slash non-consensual encounter with Bathsheba and then his murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. That's the real truth, the raw, unvarnished fact of the matter. What we have here is just the opposite, an idealized portrait of the king, an exemplar, a conqueror. Now I'm going to be the one with spineless simp tattooed to her forehead. The second also comes from chapter 20 in the discussion of Elchanan, son of Yair, the Bethlehemites' exploits. 635 chapters previous, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 17 how David killed Goliath the Philistine. It became the inspiration for countless paintings and sculptures. But then, 35 chapters later in 2 Samuel chapter 21, we read about Elchanan killing Goliath. I think I understand. So here's the chronicler once and for all deciding who gets the W on that one. It's Elchanan for the win, which is a weird choice considering all the pandering that largely characterizes the chronicler's tone and direction thus far. 
Chronicler is all about propping up and glorifying the house of David to the point where he elides or overwrites or rewrites stories from previous books to make David look good and his detractors look bad. In other words, he sounds kind of just like the partisan press. These days, everyone is decrying the partisan press as this destructive force in society, pitting people against each other while creating an environment of liberals said this, conservatives said that, to the point where a person can't decide what's actually real anymore. It's an epistemological crisis, and in classic human fashion, we assume this phenomenon is brand new and has no precedent or history at all. And let's be clear, the phenomenon I'm talking about is this notion that once upon a time we had an objective press or objective accounts of the world and then partisanship, like eating from the fruit of the tree of knowing good and evil, just opened our eyes and changed everything for the worse. Except that the farther back you go in the history of modern mainstream media, the quicker you realize that the idea of a nonpartisan press is the exception and not the rule. There were party newspapers that gave their sided versions of the news. These newspapers, then again, really any newspaper, lived in the area of the Venn diagram where the state, the party system, paying to keep the lights on, social changes, and new technology overlap. In Canada, for example, Quebec's French masters didn't allow a printing press to enter the colony until 1760. Journalism didn't exist in British Canada until 1751, when the British established Halifax, and it only came to Quebec in 1764 when the British defeated the French. But even had there been a press to be partisan, there weren't enough people in Canada who could read what they wrote, and the press, once it began to find its place and purpose, existed really to serve the state and uphold the status quo. It would take Joseph Howe's fiery attacks on public policy and the magistrates who enforced it in his paper, The Nova Scotian, to enshrine, or at least decriminalize, a press that took a different position on political issues in Canada, and that was in 1835. South of the border, at roughly the same time, the partisan press was alive and kicking with knives attached to their boots. For example, papers in opposition to Andrew Jackson attacked him for marrying a woman before her divorce had been finalized. Pro-Jackson newspapers insisted Jackson was innocent and accused his critics of violating his privacy. You're either with us or against us. And if the anti-Jackson paper came across something pro-Jackson, like when Democrat Grover Cleveland won the presidency in 1884, the Republican Los Angeles Times simply didn't report this unwanted result for several days. Yes, you want your team to win, but as I said earlier, you also want the lights to stay on. So before the American Civil War, parties subsidized the operations of many newspapers directly or through government printing contracts. And in many cases, the subsidies were indirect and largely unknown to readers. This naked partisanship went unchecked and unabated for well into the middle of the 20th century. When certain voices, mostly on the right, began to talk about being fair and balanced sometime in the 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s. 
Human Events, a right-wing newsweekly founded in 1944, declared that they were dedicated to publishing the facts that other outlets overlooked. Sound familiar? Yet, while peddling this fact-based approach, the editors were also dedicated to promoting a distinct point of view. They claimed that they strived for objectivity, accurately representing the facts, but they weren't going to be impartial. Conservatives spent the 1950s establishing their own outlets, and in the 1960s took on an additional mission, discrediting existing media. They first attacked the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and its fairness doctrine, saying it stank of liberal bias and stacked the deck against them. This sentiment reached its apotheosis in 2006 when Stephen Colbert, embodying his character of a blustery right-wing pundit, hosted the White House Correspondents' Dinner and said in the presence of Republican President George W. Bush, And reality has a well-known liberal bias. Take two generations of such right-wing attacks on facts, the evolution of a separate media space catering to alternative facts. Add a healthy dose of confusion about whether what I'm reading is editorial or news, and what you get is total chaos in here. So perhaps in a perverse way, it's nice and bracing to read something so unequivocal and univocal in The Chronicler. What you read is what you get. And he doesn't bother with counter-attacking those who would smear the king. He just gives us David's best and only side. And as David secures the homeland, his legacy, and his heir, the chronicler reports David's charge to the officers and courtiers, quote, Is not Adonai your God with you? And he shall grant you rest, for he has given into my hand the dwellers of the land. And the land has been conquered before Adonai and before his people. And now, set your heart and your very being to seek Adonai your God, and rise and build the sanctuary of Adonai God, so as to bring the Ark of Adonai's covenant and God's sacred vessels to the house being built for the name of Adonai. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 237, when we continue in First Chronicles with chapters 24 through 27.